Morning. 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 Nice. All right. Uh, for those guys that don't know me, my name is uh, Josh uh, Guerrero. If you want to get spicy, Guerrero. Yeah. If you don't want to get spicy, you can keep it at Guerrero. My wife, blonde hair, blue eyed, she keeps it a little less spicy. All right. And that's okay. I'm one of the pastors here at the well. Um, and more specifically, I'm a church planning resident. Uh, and what that means is me and my wife are here to plant a church out of the well in southeast Austin. All right, whoever did the suwu, I appreciate that in some ways. I'm also a little intimidated by you. All right. <laughs> um, yeah, if you want more information about that, holler at your boy. My email is all across the website. Actually, it's just in one spot, but you can get it from the website. Or you could just talk to me here. That's fine, too. Just holler at me. Today is not for that, though. Today, right now, is for continuing our series in Mark. Uh, we're going to be in Mark 14 today. And uh, I, I want to kind of make it clear that we are, we're kind of turning the wheel a little bit in our series. We're, we're sh jumping forward to, to Mark 14. This was never intended to be a series that, that hit on every single little thing that happens in Mark. Man, I encourage you to go do that in your personal devotion time. Be in your word. Look into Mark. Uh, parse out all the little details. But for us, we're moving forward because we're going to turn the corner into the passion of Christ, right? That we're going to turn the corner into his trial, his arrest, his, his uh, crucifixion, his resurrection. We're going to turn the corner into that this week. And so we're going to feel a little bit of weight this morning uh, that may be a little bit different than, than what we felt in the past few weeks. Uh, yet nonetheless, it's going to bring a lot of joy if we can see past some of that weight. And so uh, as we get ready to dive in, if you don't have a Bible, raise your hand. Our ushers uh, can bring a Bible to you. If you don't have one at home, Man, take that one home. Like, we want you to have your eyes on Scripture, and so that's our gift to you. In addition, if you have the Bible app, the YouVersion Bible app, you can go to that um, hyperlink, or you can go to the events page, and you can pull up some notes there as well. We're going to be in Mark 14, but before we go into that, I do kind of want to set our minds a little bit into kind of what we're going to be talking about. Uh, how many people here have dogs? Raise your hand. It's a lot of people. And I heard a stat that there's more dogs in Austin than there are kids, all right? That's wild, but whatever, all right? There's a lot of dogs. Uh, so personally, I have one kid and two dogs, so that stat is actually correct for me. So I can't really say anything about that. But my two dogs, their name is, uh, one's name is Augie. That's short for Augustine, from St. Augustine, because I'm super Christian, all right? And the other one's name is Spanky, uh, the older one, because I haven't always been super Christian, all right? Uh, so, and I'm going to be really, really transparent. If you were going to average out uh, the dog behavior in our house, it would end up at about average. Like, we have average behaved dogs. Now, the reason for that is not because they're both just okay dogs. In reality, Augie, and this, I don't know if this is because my man was named after a theologian or what, but Augie is a phenomenal dog. <laughs> Augie is half, uh, half Rottweiler and half German Shepherd. And my man is like, yo, did I do it right? Can I get a pet? I don't want you. Hey, if you don't pet me, I'm not going to know if I did it right. You know, like that's kind of his disposition. And Spanky, on the other hand, I don't know if I, I don't know, but he just does not care what you think. He's a little beagle. He's maybe like 25, 30 pounds. And homeboy just thinks with his nose and his stomach, and that's it. All right? And so realistically, man, that guy sucks. I'm not going to lie to you. That dude is, is a bad dog. All right? He is a very bad dog. And so when you take both of these ends and you bring them in 
it comes out to just about average. I'm not going to lie. Like, it's just one really good dog, one really bad dog. The reality is I love them both equally. But, man, when I compare them, it is, it is drastic, the difference between the two. And uh, I'm not going to lie, when we're talking about dogs today and comparing dogs, and I love my dogs, I treat them right, don't think that I treat this one worse than this one, nothing like I love them equally, all right? But when we're doing this comparison game between dogs, it's really funny. Uh, it's a lot harder when we do it between us and God. Uh, when we have to start taking out the measuring stick and measuring who we are versus who God is uh, and the morality, the ethics between us, it turns into uh, something that's a lot less jovial a lot harder. It weighs on us a lot. And I'm not going to lie, that, that's going to be a lot of what happens here today, uh, primarily because Mark is going to use this portion of the book to highlight two things to us specifically. Uh, the first one is going to be that he highlights the character of Christ. And man, that, that's, we're going to see some awesome, some awesome aspects of Christ. The other reality is that Mark is going to highlight the character of the disciples, and by that, he's going to characterize humanity as a whole. And I'm not going to lie, it will feel weighty between now and like whenever we're done. It's not going to be all day, but whenever we're done. But if you can somehow in your heart, if you, you ask the Lord almost right now, God, help me see the beauty of the gap between this one and this one. Help me see that there is hope between those two gaps. Then, man, I promise you at the end of this day, you, you will be overjoyed in your inability. And so we want to go ahead and dive in. We're going to start in the middle. Uh, Mark 14 is like the third or fourth longest chapter in all of the Gospels. So we're going to, we can't go through all of it, but, but I did try to pick a section that I think is going to really embody what's happening. So we're going to start in verse 26, and we're going to kind of go chunk by chunk here. We're going to read down to 31. And it says, And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives, and Jesus said to them, You will all fall away. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will scatter. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. We're going to stop right there, verse 28, okay? Now, for those of you that, that kind of don't know what's going on, if you could leave this up here for a second, Sandra. Uh, and when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mountain of Olives. Um, now, what that means is that they sung a hymn to close out Passover, what had just happened is Jesus had gotten all of the disciples together and probably some other people like the disciples' family, and they had just eaten the Passover meal together, which means they put out a big spread and they had to eat all night until that mess was gone, all right? They had to eat every single little thing. And during the course of the Passover meal, Jesus did make a couple of really, really, really outrageous claims. He was like, once, at one point, he was like, yo, one of you guys is going to betray me in like just the middle of the Passover meal, Right? I don't know if you've been to Thanksgiving at your house, all right, but I'd be mad weirded out if, like, my dad one day was like, one of you guys are calling the cops on me right now, all right? And I'm like, what? Oh, my gosh. Yeah, I, you know, so it'd be a little weird, all right? But he resolved that. He also brought in this really beautiful moment where he was like, hey, but, but man, we're having Passover. One of you is going to betray me, but take my blood, take my body. I want to show you that in this time, I'm actually the greater Passover lamb. I'm going to bring in uh, a new forgiveness of sins. I'm going to bring in something through me that's a new covenant, just like we had before, uh, but, man, even better than we had before through me. And so he ends it with this really beautiful moment. And then they sing the hymn, which is going to conclude uh, the Passover meal. They all get up, and they all start going to the Mount of Olives. And I'm sure it was like, man, that was nice. That was good. We sung the hymn. We're all together. This is feeling good again. 
And then, bam, Jesus comes back in. And Jesus said to them, you will all fall away. Now, imagine you're back at that Thanksgiving meal, <laughs> okay? And Jesus goes, and, and, you know, my pops goes one step further. He's like, when are you going to betray me? And, in fact, all of you are going to forget me. It's like, man, man, dude, calm down. Right? And they'd be like, dude, calm down. I know you're sad, but calm down. But the reason for this is actually really specific. He's not complaining. Jesus isn't complaining here. Um, the reason he says this is very specific, he says, I will, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will scatter. That is a reference from Zechariah 13. Uh, and that, that I here, that I here is very specific. That's a very specific I. It's talking about a very specific person. That's not saying, oh man, I know that someone betrayed me or I know you guys are going to leave me or I know the Roman judges are going to get me or I know that the Hebrew leaders are going to, 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 to arrest me. That I in Zechariah that I is talking about God, that, that the hour has come for God to strike Jesus. He looks at them and goes, hey, guys, I, you guys may betray me, all that stuff, but the reality is we're about to enter into the hardest thing I've ever done and the hardest thing you will ever experience. We're about to enter into the hardship of God striking me. And, man, it is going to be the hardest thing they've ever gone through. And it's going to produce a lot of joy. Now, understand this, man. At the end of the story, we have a lot of joy that's going to be produced out of this. But in that moment, they know that, man, they're still going to go through a lot of hard stuff to get to that joy. In fact, that hard stuff is going to be what produces the joy in their lives. Man, time after time through this book, we have seen Jesus fight for the joy and the life and the heart of his disciples. And he has done it in radical ways. He's put them out onto ships and thinking they were going to die. He's put them in positions where they didn't know what they were going to eat. He's put them in positions where they watch like a hundred pigs or thousands of pigs commit suicide. It's been really intense. Jesus has done some pretty intense things. Also that he can say, hey, guys, take your heart, take your mind, take your thoughts and start putting them onto me and see that I'm greater than these things. And that will bring you the actual joy you're looking for. That will bring you the actual life hope you're looking for. And likewise, in this moment, the way God is going to fight for the joy, the life and the heart of the disciples is going to be by taking the leader that they had followed, slept with, ate with, communed with, fellowship with, been a family with for three years and strike him dead. Because he knew that the, the, the comforts of this life, just having Jesus near, were, were going to pale in comparison to the eternal gospel relationship they could have with him had he died. And to liberate them of their sins, to free them of the shame, the guilt that sin brings, that was going to be far greater for the joy than anything else could be. And he knew that. And so he says, hey, guys, we're about to enter into this. And let me tell you something. You're not ready. You're not ready. You're not ready for that. We are about to go into the deepest and hardest thing that's happened to me that will ever happen to you. And as my children, as the, the loves of my heart, as my sheep, as the shepherd, I need to warn you, you're not ready. You will fall away. That, that's really, really difficult. Because when we listen to that, we oftentimes go, okay, that was really hard, though. That was really hard for them. But, but in reality, this is, this is kind of a warning that really hits on every single one of us. Because the reality is that God still fights for our joy in a really similar way as this. There are times where, man, you've had hardships in your life. And, and I want to be really sensitive here because I know that we have, 
everyone in here has experienced different degrees and aspects of, of hardship. But man, I want you to know that man, there have been times the Lord has used that to bring you to himself because he's the only thing that could make you truly joyful. He's the only thing that could bring you life. And so when he looks and goes, hey, I I'm going to do something, and I am going to fight for your joy through something that feels really hard, but I need to warn you, you're not ready. That is a challenge that extends not to these 12 men alone, but to every single person sitting in this room and across the world that claims to be in love and following Jesus. Then you are going to have moments where God calls you into hardship and says, at the end of this, I'm going to produce joy, but, but do not fall away. Do not be tempted away from me in the midst of this hardship. This, this phrase, actually, a you will fall away, is not even necessarily rooted in this sense of like rebellion or like hatred. It's actually a phrase in Greek that meant almost like a trap or a snare. It, it almost means, kind of picture if you're a jogger jogging and you are like looking up or forward and you're just, maybe you're just being an idiot and your eyes are just straight closed, right? Um, and there is a log in front of you except for this log has been put there by a bandit in the bushes waiting to capitalize on unsuspecting joggers, right? Like, that, that's kind of the setting that this almost, this almost looks like. Jesus is saying, hey, I'm, I'm going to allow some things to happen here. I'm going to, the Lord's going to strike me, and the enemy is going to set a trap for you in the middle of that. And let me tell you, friend, you, you're asleep. You're not ready. And so, man, he's not even saying, yo, you're going to have this deep rebellion in your heart. He's just saying, yo, right now, your heart and your soul are weak. That's really all he's saying. And what makes this hard is that, again, for us, it's the reality that, yo, I mean, I'm oftentimes weak. In the moments when temptation comes knocking at my door, I often find, find myself ill-prepared. When the temptation of having safety or security rather than having uh, the discomfort of saying, yeah, man, would you, would you like to come with me to church? Or, yeah, man, I'm, I'm a Christian. Or, yeah, man, I'm, I'm going to church this Sunday. Oftentimes, I shrink back and go, man, I don't got nothing going on this weekend. Because I, I fundamentally believe in that moment that, that man, the security that I could find in, in that is, is really greater than the, the security Christ extends me in being in him. That th these little moments, right, where we are actually falling away because the trap that is set for us in, in whether these, these grand ways or, or the smallest ways, the weakness of our heart, the ill-preparedness of our, our spiritual posture makes us go, yeah, sure, I, I'll give into this. And so lovingly, affectionately, knowing what's about to happen, Jesus looks at his disciples and goes, hey, y'all aren't ready. You're weak. And, uh, man, I would like to tell you that in verse 29, my man Peter's like, you're right. <laughs> I'm going to submit my heart and soul to you, and, man, help me, God. That's not what happens, though. Uh, verse 29, Peter said to him, even though they all fall away, I will not. My guy. Okay. Golly. 30. And Jesus said to him, truly, I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows twice, Peter, you will deny me three times. But he said emphatically, my man doubled down, y'all. All right, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And then they all said the same. This is, this is a dangerous moment for the disciples. Because oftentimes what happens is, is just like them, when, when we receive a rebuke from the word, from our church, from our brothers, we oftentimes, instead of being uh, almost, almost schizophrenic, 
in, in the most positive way I can use that word, almost schizophrenic about our heart, our propensity to fall away, the vulnerability of our souls, the, the, the propensity we have to really turn to sin to derive joy and comfort. Instead of going to the source of joy and comfort, we can go, no, nah, man, I, I'm good. No, nah, man, I, I'm straight. And what they don't realize they're doing in this moment is calling into question the wisdom, the guidance, the love, the justice of God in this very moment. In this very moment, they look at him and in his wisdom go, I'm not sure you got that right, man. I'm doing pretty good. I'm doing, I'm doing all right. And what we do in that moment, in addition to calling into question God, is we place a weight of perfection on our back that we cannot bear to say, hey, you know what? Actually, I'm good. I, I, I will prove you, God, the infinite creator of all things wrong by showing you, yo, I got this. Do you, do you got this? Do they got this? Yo, Peter's written a lot about in this book, but you know what? Let's, uh, let's see. Actually, let's see a bit of what happens to Peter. Let's, let's jump down a little bit, all right? We're going to go to verse... 43, we're going to check out what happens in the middle, uh, what happens, not in the middle, what happens to Peter and the rest of the disciples who exclaim, yo, we won't, we won't leave you. you. You got it twisted. We won't leave you. Starting in verse 43, and immediately, while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now stop there real quick. Yo, Jesus put out a warning while he was having Passover that said, one of you guys is going to betray me. All right. This is that moment, just if you, didn't, if you didn't know. All right. And then he looked to the rest of his disciples and said, hey, man, you guys are going to fall away. You may not have a deep hatred, rebellion, and hard-heartedness toward me the way this man may, but I'm letting you know you're, you're vulnerable, susceptible to the traps and schemes of the enemy, and you're going to fall away as well. And I just want you to see and notice that, that, man, that was in the final moments of Jesus' life, right, amongst his family and his friends, he was surrounded by those that would be too weak to stand with him and one that was already so hard-hearted toward him that he was going to give him up. That, that was the position of Jesus in this moment. And so when I told you in the beginning, we're turning a corner that's going to feel a little weighty. I, I, I didn't say it passingly or jokingly. I mean, this is where he's at. And, and man, this is, this is a stark contrast, I get it, between the disciples and Judas. Maybe they're not quite the same in, in our eyes, yet at core, man, these are actually exactly the same. What, what happened here was that there was a man named Judas, and Judas' heart became hardened because he did not fundamentally believe that Jesus was who Jesus said he was. And yeah, it took a long time. It stewed, and there was a hardness there. And he said, you know what? I, this is so bad. Man, I, in the midst of temptation, I, I would take 30 pieces of silver because I don't really, I'm not 100% sure Jesus is, is about all the things he said he's about. And that can feel like a drastically different thing than, than being overcome in the moment of, of pressure and temptation. But the reality is, man, these two things are actually exactly the same. For Judas to say, I don't believe you, and I would actively work against you, is just a farther along progression than, than the brother or sister, one of us that goes, in a moment of susceptibility, I would believe that there's something better than you. Yeah. And they, they may feel like, oh, their stress is different. But remember that in James, in the book of James, in James 2, James says that, man, if you're guilty of one portion of the law, you're guilty of all of it. 
Because all of it starts at this fundamental belief that there's something better, greater, more powerful, stronger, wiser, uh, more intimidating, more life-giving, more hope-giving, more joy-giving than the source of all those things. And so the reality is, Judas may come, and he's going to be the betrayer, and he's going to hand over Jesus. But the gap between Judas and the disciples is actually not a gap at all. They're all just guilty. And so 44, now the betrayer had, let me get back to this. I like being here. Now the betrayer had given them a sign saying, the one I will kiss is the man. Seize him and lead him away under guard. And when he came, he went up to him at once and said, Rabbi, and he kissed him. And they laid hands on him and seized him. But the one who stood by drew his sword and struck the servants of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus said to them, have you come out as against a robber? Pause. That word robber is a Greek word that can actually be used in a couple of ways. One is robber, like a thief. The other one is like an insurgent, like a revolutionary leader. Remember that just a few weeks ago, we talked about how Jesus was kind of mistaken as being like a, a leader in the zealot movement to overthrow the Roman government. And so Jesus is looking and going, have you come out here like I'm some type of revolutionary that's, that's that's actively working against you and, and the Romans and everything else, you had multiple chances. Oh, let's just read it. We're just going to keep reading, guys, because the Bible's good, y'all. All right. Day after day, I was with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me, but let the scriptures be fulfilled. Christ again knows, man, this is not you. This is not the timing. I, you had time and time again to arrest me. This is according to the Father's will, not yours. Okay? And they all left him and fled. Who do you think all is here? Let's take a guess. All right. 51. And a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body, and they seized him. But he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. My man was the first ever streaker. All right. Now, those of you that are pretty laced up to... John, Matthew, Luke, the other Gospels, you can probably tell me who these people are. Who cuts off a, a, high, a chief priest servant's ear? Bam, money, 100%. All right. Now, here's a, here's a little good, this is a special Bible, Bible, Bible trivia right here. What is the name of the chief priest servant? Come on. Come on. Let me finish the sentence. Come on. Let me finish the question. All right. Showing out over there in the, that side. All right. I don't know who it was, but that side. Okay. Malchus. Most people believe in verse 51 that the young man who's wearing the linen cloth, that that's John Mark himself, the person that wrote this book. He came from a very prominent family, and a linen cloth was a description as, as a garment that was really nice. It wasn't just like something you threw over your body. It was a really nice linen cloth. And so something shifts here because, man, everyone else tells us who these people are. But Mark wants to help you realize that there, there's no more first name basis here. When he says they all fled, there was no more Peter. There was no more John Mark. There, there was Christ alone. That when he said, you're not ready, and they all said, no, we're ready. Yeah, we are. What happened was he was left with no one when the temptation hit. That's what happened. And Mark helps us see the weight of that by going, I don't, I don't know who Peter is. 
I don't know who John Mark is. I don't know who Malchus is. I know that there was nobody there, including myself. And so when Jesus warns them, hey, hey, man, brothers, you're not ready. They say, yeah, we are. Jesus was right. And, and that warning, uh, man, it stands today. In, in many cases, guys, I just want to lovingly say as your, your pastor, and for a lot of you guys, as like your, your actual friend, man, for a lot of us in here, we're not ready. They had just got through with a feast, loving on each other, singing a song together for goodness sake. They had gone through the villages and towns and seen people healed. A woman had just brought in a, like, I think it's almost like a, a whole year, like, price. In terms of, like, the, the oil that she brought in and anointed Jesus' feet with was the equivalent of an entire year of, of salary. Like, they had kind of seen all this beautiful stuff, and it was like, man, this is pretty cool. And for some of us in here, we are, I just want to be really, really honest, we are riding a wave that is built on shallow soil because we have had a good time up until now. And being very transparent, some of us have lived enchanted lives. And I don't mean to belittle what you've gone through. I, I mean to highlight that, man, in the midst of that, do not mistake that for the favor of God. He desires to fight for your joy just like he did these men, but he needed to warn them that, man, they weren't ready. And the reality is that in this room, some of us aren't either. In fact, a lot of us aren't. Maybe none of us are. And so we're left at the end of verse 52 with a Jesus who is alone, deserted, abandoned, betrayed by human beings. And the reality is when we read this, Mark wants us to read this and go, that's you. That's you. That's me. That in our deepest hearts, we, we are prone to desert, abandon, and betray. And at this moment, what, what's really easy is for us to feel the weight of that and go, man, this, this feels ugly. Because now I'm dealing with this reflection in the mirror that I don't like because I have this God who's looking at me and going, hey, man, what you think you are, you're not. And what you want to be is not what you are yet. And, and so... We bear with this, and we ask where the hope is in this, but, but the reality is, man, the hope does not come from us. The reason we're, we're reading this and it's weighty is because this hope is not meant to be derived from us. It's meant to be derived from someone else. And so that part we skipped over becomes extra important right now. Because as we start to observe the disciples, start to observe ourselves, and that, that, that kind of weighty sense of hopelessness starts to set in, man, Mark does this really awesome thing where he gives us this beautiful view of Christ that's much more vulnerable than we've ever seen him. But that vulnerability actually gives us more hope than maybe we've ever had. So we jump back in at verse 32. And it says, And they went to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, Sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John, and begin to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. 
And going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. Um, Jesus, in this moment, is not just met with the distress of having his leader taken from him or, or having to run away from law enforcement. He's dealing with understanding the hour for God's wrath to be poured out on him has come. That, that he is going to be confronted with temptation, even now, to say, God, can, can this be taken away from me? Can this be, be passed from me? He's going to encounter the hardest hardship of his life. And he looks, and in beautiful, beautiful form, he says, Abba, Father, which the word Abba, some of you guys know this, right? It's a very intimate word. It's a little known fact. That word, Abba, kind of like saying daddy to God, no, nowhere present in any written form of prayer in this culture. No one possibly had ever done this before. And he takes the intimacy with his God and says, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. And in Christ's moment of temptation, in Christ's moment of, of anticipating hardship, Christ displays that unlike the disciples, he in fact is ready. He's not going to shrink back to his will. He is going to cling to the will of the Father in full belief that what he has in terms of the joy he has in, 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 in waits for the disciples and for himself is far greater than any other alternative that could be had by not taking on the wrath of God, by not going to the cross, by not being tortured, by not being whipped. And, and I want you to see right here, this is the exact same thing that's about to happen to the disciples in like five verses, except for he does it. The disciples can't do it, but he does it. The disciples are weak, but he's strong. The disciples have disbelief, but he has utter faithfulness. The disciples are scared, but man, he's fearless. Friends, the reality is we stand up here often in our sermons and with good reason, and we go, man, Jesus is the greater Peter. Jesus is the greater Moses. You've heard us use that language countless times. But what, what Mark wants to show us right now is that Jesus is the greater you. Jesus is the greater me. That when I have failed to be faithful to God, he has not. When I have shrunk back before temptation in, in, in any form, and when I have lost my battle with fear, when I have lost my battle with temptation, when I've lost my battle with anger, with lust, with anything else that you can imagine, he did not. He's the greater you. Man, man, wherever you have failed, wherever you have failed, before him and before anyone else, he is not. He succeeded in every way. Man, this is not just us looking at someone who, who off in a distance did something really good. This is someone doing something, what, doing the things that we should have done. And in this moment, the joy that we get to have begins to be teased out. Because here, here, this is where the gospel has its root. 
This is it. When we were faithless, he was faithful. Man, and now when he takes the cross, the joy of it is that when we start to see the great chasm between us and him, we start to see the great gap between him and me, we start to see that the bridge does not have to be laid out by me, but the bridge for that to be reconciled and brought back together is built by him. That his faithfulness is the one that bridges it over. And as he takes the cross, he says, hey, hey, man, you know that guilt that you, you, you feel based on your failure? Come to me. Exchange that for the victory of my, the joy of my victory. Exchange that with me for what I've done for you. Because I've done what you couldn't do. I've done what only I could do. But I surrendered that so I could freely give it to you. Man, the joy in this moment, guys, is not that, that we can make it up. It's that we don't ever have to. It's that, man... He has already done it. And now when we have the opportunity to stand before someone or to run away naked, I know that when I stand there, whether I run away or I stand, it's not going to change the affections, the holiness, the, the love, the care that this God has extended to me. In fact, it, man, whichever one I do, it's not going to change. But that makes me want to stand more. Man, this is not an opportunity. The moment we see the, the chasm between him and us, it's not meant so that we can shrink back and feel guilty about ourselves. It's so that it can lead us into worshiping someone that gave us something we could never earn. And so right now, right here, man, we are, we are confronted with the reality of who we are, and then we are overwhelmed with the reality of who Jesus is. And man, that, that, and that's, that's the difference. Whether you... Whether you are like Judas or whether you are like Peter, the distinction between their guilt was nothing. They were both guilty of everything. They both felt the weight of, of losing belief and losing faith in the God that had stayed with them side by side, that had fed them, that had brought them through. The main difference was that one was able to see the hope of Christ fulfilling everything they couldn't, and one wasn't. If you don't know, Judas... Later on, he's going to commit suicide out of his grief. You know, I hope I'm not ruining the story. If I am, that's on you. It's not on me. All right. And, uh, and likewise, what Jesus said about Peter and the whole denying him three times, also, plot, that's not a plot twist. You said it. That's not, me, that's not me unveiling the story to you. You should get that. You should know that. He said it. He does that. And the scriptures say that both of them are filled with grief. They're overwhelmed by grief. Except for much like the disciples earlier in verse 29, Judas saw that there was no way he could build the bridge from him to God again. It was gone. While Peter held out long enough for God to say, hey, bring me Peter because I want him. And, and Peter was able to see the beauty that God had done everything Peter needed to be forgiven, not Peter. Today, like right now, the reality in, in this room, the reality in this room, guys, is that, man, we are guilty we are guilty. And now stop, and I, I want you to stop right now, hold, but hold on one second. I want you to stop and look around the room. Just look around for a second. All right, look around. There's people next to you that are white, black, brown, any assortment of colors, 
all right? There's people that are older, younger. There's people that have, you know, have like 100 PhDs like Mark and Misty and people that like, people that have GDs like Josh, right? There is the full spectrum of people in this room, all right? That, that's the reality in, in where you're sitting. You're not alone in your guilt. We're all guilty. Man, we're all sitting here. Man, let me be very transparent. Yo, I haven't changed from this. I have. I've progressed. The, the, the Lord has, like, caused me to grow, and he's, he's given me faith. And, man, that's miraculous. He did that. But, man, there are still plenty of times where I'm face-to-face with temptation, and I'm just like, I, I, this seems like it's more legit. My hope and my joy in that moment is not going to come from me magically reversing my inability. It's going to come from seeing and resting in the Lord's victory and what he's done. And that's, that's where it comes from. And so today, when you look around right here, man, we are a group of corporately guilty people. That's who we're sitting with right now. And our only saving hope is to set our eyes, both individually and together, on this person who did everything we can't, who's the greater Josh, the greater who, the greater Tori, the greater Nick, the greater you, whoever you are, insert name. That's our only hope. So how do we do that? How do we do that? What do we do with this weight of sin, and how do we get it from us and exchange it with him. How do we do that? And to finish off, Jesus has like some very legit yet simple advice. And he came out and found them sleeping, and he said, Peter, and he said to Peter, Simon, recognizing that though Peter had spent many years with Christ, and he had changed his name to Peter in this moment, and he was still being like Simon. He was still being like the old guy. But without any less love, with with no less love, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Man, Jesus sees and understands like, Peter, you're weak, bro. But pray. Pray. Pray to set your eyes on me. Pray, Pray together with your brothers that you would corporately remind each other that I'm greater than you and that you can turn to me. Man, when your flesh is weak and and unable, know that there's still a spirit inside of you that can miraculously work to change your heart. Man, go submit yourself to the Lord. Petition him individually. Petition him together. Pray. Seek him. Ask him earnestly, God, will you help me? Will you help me? Where I am unable, you have proven able, and you've proven the ability to change me from what I was to what you want me to be. God, help me. That's a really simple thing to do. But you're not praying to an unable one. You're praying to the only one that's able. You're praying to the only one that can take a heart that's dead and make it a heart that's alive. To turn people that were were literally, the entire book has been about this, guys. To form a community of people, if you remember in in, in Simon the Zealot and in Matthew the tax collector, people that were way opposite sides but but had been brought together as a family. He's the only one that that can take the the winds and seize them and and stop them so to bring peace on a boat that for all other intents and purposes should have been capsized. 
Man, Jesus has shown time and time again through this entire book, through nature and through every other circumstance that they've been in, man, you can trust me. I'm able. And in this moment that seems so less, why would you not believe that I can go into your heart and go change? Seek him. Seek him. Can we seek him together? Can you, right, as, as a church, can us as a church, can we corporately decide, man, I'm going to pray for a brother or sister this week. And in fact, I'm going to get maybe a brother or sister together and pray together for ourselves. Man, there ain't nothing wrong with that, dog. Some of y'all are like, I can't pray for myself. Yes, you can. Do it. He did it. Jesus is out there like, help me. How come you can't? How come I can't? I need to. He needed to. So corporately together, man, when, when we walk away from this, the, the primary things that we see are, man, spiritually, we need to set our eyes on this Jesus. Because in his victory, we have victory. Yet the most practical thing we can do is, is simply to look and go, God, help me. In my own prayer life, help me. Not just when things are going bad, but even when things are going good. God, help me. Help me to be faithful to you. Help me to see the beauty of, of your victory. Help me to see that I, right, that I in my inability am, am, am made whole in your victory, in your ability to be completely obedient, completely faithful to God. That's where I find my hope. And so together, guys, man, I would love for us to do that today. I would love for us to do that today. We're going to worship here in a little bit. Man, sing like crazy. Sing like crazy about the victory of Jesus. Because when we sing about his holiness, when we sing about his obedience, we sing about our holiness. We sing about our obedience. And together, man, today I would love for us to together pray for us. Man, I don't, I don't want to pray for us up here. I would love for us to take two minutes for me to turn off the mic and for you and me, all of us together as Christians, if you are a Christian in here, to pray for you and then to pray for the brothers next to you. Pray that we would be focused like a laser on the person of Jesus, what he's doing in our life, what he's done already. Pray that we would be strengthened. Pray that in the moments of goodness, we would stay focused on Christ. Pray in the moments of hardship, we would be fortified to cling to him and not rely on ourselves. Man, but let's pray for us in here today. Can we do that together? You're gonna, now I'm going to let you know you're going to suffer through like, like a legit two minutes of silence, but you're okay with that, right? Appreciate you. All right. Uh, I'll come back in at the end and give a short prayer uh, to close us out. But let's go ahead and pray.